Hi, and welcome to Power of Ten, a podcast about design operating at many levels, zooming out from thoughtful detail through to organisational transformation and on to changes in society and the world. My name's Andy Pollain. I'm a designer, educator and writer. Throughout my career, I've learned more about creativity and design through writing than anything else. I think it's partly because words are so universal, yet so tricky, and partly because writing, or good writing at least, forces you to slow down. There's no shortcut or menu item for an instant second draft. You have to write the first draft first. My guests today are Michael J. Metz and Andy Welshley, authors of Writing is Designing, Words and the User Experience, about to be published by Rosenfeld Media in January. Michael has a background in journalism and says he frequently finds himself talking about the role words play in designing useful, usable experiences. And when Andy was eight, he wanted to be a poet and a paleontologist. 28 years later, he's neither, but he uses those skills in his day job as a content strategist on Adobe's product design team, writing under huge constraints and uncovering artifacts from big old software interfaces. Michael and Andy, welcome to Power of Ten. So excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, Andy. So first of all, congratulations on the book. It's finished. Did it take you longer than you thought? No one ever says this book took me <laughs> far less time than I imagined it would. It was it was nothing really. We just uh, you know we just breezed, breezed through it. It was fine. <laughs> Michael, I don't know what your experience is, but I think we stuck pretty close to deadlines, right? Yeah, the deadlines. You know, I think the actual writing the words uh, didn't take as long as all the other pieces of putting it together. So that was oh, yeah. encouraging. All the sweeping I, up at the end takes ages. Right? <laughs> exactly. <Yes>. Exactly. <laughs> totally. So it's coming out in, in January, right? Because I read a preview, I think. Yep. I think the official date is January 14th. Or 14th January to our British and uh, European friends. The 14th of January, friends. I would yes. say. Yes, that's right. <laughs> I love that we're already getting down in the nitty-gritty. Localizing it, yep. So if you go to Rosenfeld Media, you'll find it there, and I'm, I'm sure you'll find it on Amazon and a few other places too. So my very first question is, there's quite a lot of content strategy books out there. There's quite a lot of a few content design books out there. Is this a content design book? Because quite early on, right at the beginning, you kind of talk about being designers of words and it made me think you're wanting to kind of make a, a differentiation there. And just before we were recording, you were saying there's maybe a bit of a kind of European versus US understanding of this. Yeah. Um, I think in the US, content design and content strategy, at least when applied to like in a UX context, like a product context, is a little bit more muddy. And it's certainly different wherever you go in the US. But we had a long talk with our publisher about what audiences and what roles we want to target. And at some point we just realized that we're trying to instill, you know, a good UX writing practice among anyone, not just UX writers, among PMs, among designers, um, anybody on a product team. So we tried really, really hard to remove roles from the responsibilities here, just because these are good things for visual designers to know too, or PMs. So we're kind of pleading the the fifth, or at least you know, trying to be silent <laughs> about <laughs> about um, you know what roles this is for. Really, anybody on a product team who's thinking about the user experience and needs to write the words would get something out of this book. We think. And I think there's a. Um, I talked in the introduction about words being universal yet tricky, and my experience is um, I have the same publisher as you. I'm, I'm a writer too. I wouldn't say I'm a. I don't necessarily use it. I'm not a content designer or UX writer. But I think that the 
tricky thing with words is everyone uses them, right? So in the kind of archetypal, everyone's a designer and everyone, what they actually mean is kind of everyone's got an opinion about design. It's even worse <laughs> with words in a sense because everyone writes emails, right? Yeah. So is that part of the the kind of the manifesto, if you like, that you're trying to get across to actually be just more considered about the words you're using and get everyone to kind of understand that these things that are kind of ubiquitous everyday things actually really matter? Yeah, absolutely. The One of the things we touch on just slightly in the book is how in a more traditional design job, you're going to have a tool that typically serves as a gatekeeping mechanism and, and allows you to be the person who is doing the designing, right? Because everyone, you have this complex tool, maybe it's a sketch or Envision or Axure or something like that. So you have a design tool and because you know it really well, then people are kind of relying on you and looking to you to make these design decisions and see like where the button should go and what color they should be and all those kinds of things. So I think it's more of a challenge with the language because you don't have that thing to rely on constantly, but it means that you just have to work around it in a different way and you have to solve the problem. You have to rely on influence. You have to rely on helping people learn about it through evidence and data and that's more challenging, but I think better in the long run because you have to really build this mentality amongst your team that language is important and that it really affects the experience people have with what you're building. Yeah, it's interesting. What you described there was kind of design or at least visual design or some of those other forms of design as a kind of you know secular priesthood where there's certain people have access to the, the truth, if you like, and other people are outside it. And in fact, they use Latin, don't they, for their words so often with Laura Mipson. Yeah. And yet in your case, uh, you know, the masses use use words all the time. And so there's a kind of recalibration that needs to happen. But you talk about being a designer of words and you talk about the idea of fitting design and writing together in your brain. Can you unpack that a little bit? Because it's a slightly different um, approach to thinking about, well, it's a different approach to thinking about writing, I would say, actually, as much as anything else. I think that the approach is what's different, as you said. So you're when you're designing with words, it's a matter of how intentional you're trying to be about them and making your decisions visible to the people you're working with. So you have all kinds of options. So you could write things um, in sentences. You could write things in short phrases. You could write things that sound goofy and wacky, or you could write things that sound very serious and formal. And making those decisions visible instead of just going with them and just using whatever you end up with. That's kind of what we're getting at with designing the words. Um, you're, you're applying a level of rigor to what you write and you're helping people see the decisions that you make. So I think that that's really important. And I think another, another aspect of designing with words is that you're relying on users to shape what you write and not just what you want to write. So with the book, it was very much, um, when we wrote a book, it was very much about what we wanted to say on this topic. But when you're writing for an interface, you're not writing about what you want to say. You're writing to solve a problem for someone or to help them through a flow or to help them accomplish a goal. And that's a very different way to write than a lot of the writing that people do day to day. And I think we're just trying to show the full stack of strategy behind it, right? Like we get into, you know, voice and tone strategy, which is very kind of like high level and abstract and find ways to make it a little bit more concrete. And then we actually like zoom into, you know, writing stress cases and error messages and writing for clarity. And we really kind of zoom into uh, the specifics of kind of how that manifests. So I think that full spectrum of strategy 
into the Chrome, into the actual writing of the words is what we're trying to get at. Yeah, you have a, a lot of really good examples and you do, you've got a whole section on inclusivity. Mm. And one of the things you talk about, and in fact, Andy, I think you talk about your sister, right? I do. Yeah, we we uh, we tried to fill the book in a little bit with just some personal anecdotes and stories. And I talk a little bit about one of my sisters. So I come from a pretty big family. I have four younger sisters, and one of them uses a wheelchair, although she's not paraplegic. Um, she uses it to get around, and she is an amazing athlete. She plays on the wheelchair basketball team for the University of Texas in Arlington. And they're kind of an incredible talent. Like she played on the the USA team for the the USA national team, which which won a world championship last year. And I was just talking to her a little bit about just the language that people use throughout digital experiences when referring, and really anywhere, uh, referring to people with disabilities or disabled people, as we talk about in the book. And there's a lot of talk about, you know, just like, oh, this person over, has overcome so much odds. It is inspiring. And I really tried to get her reaction and get her opinion to this. And she's like, well, I really want people to know that I'm just overcoming the odds of being an athlete and getting good at basketball and not because I'm in a wheelchair. So I think we just tried to frame some of the, some of the language that people use when talking about disabled people or LGBT people or autistic people. Try to just try to reframe that and just get some opinions from, you know, from people from those populations themselves. So that was a fun thing to write about for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting also because like most inclusive design, you it sort of works in reverse really well in the sense that if you think more carefully about those cases that might not norm, be in your kind of general everyday life, and you, you talk about quite a lot of the cases where people say, well, you know, it's, but that's, it's only 5% of our users who's going to care about that and, and, or it's not such a big deal. And, and these, you know, the classic thing about edge cases aren't actually edge cases. There are millions of people in some cases. Yeah. But you talk about, so just going back to your sister, you talk about, you know, saying, um, avoiding language that assigns values to traits. So, you know, instead of saying she's confined to a wheelchair, mm-hmm. or she's wheelchair bound, she says, you just say, well, she uses a wheelchair. Right? Yeah. Which also um, implies freedom. But you also do it when you're talking about trying not to exclude users. And I thought this example was really good where you say, um, you know, avoid saying Adobe Photoshop is for graphic designers, photographers, illustrators, and 3D artists. And instead say Adobe Photoshop helps you create graphics, photographs, illustrations, and 3D art. And it's just such a subtle shift and a reframe that shifts it from being prescriptive and exclusive to something much more inclusive. That's a really good point. And for sure, something that I think crosses crosses the boundaries of like in-product UX writing and into marketing and into advertising as well. There's a lot of really good work on our team that my coworker, Sarah Smart, did just kind of around inclusive UX writing practices. And that was a big piece of it. Yeah. Um, and when we kind of presented that to a lot of the writing teams, you know, writing marketing copy to Adobe, they were just like, oh, that's brilliant. That's great. So we've been able to kind of like, you know, cross silos and influence other parts of the company, which is cool. I mean, you talk about also um, in well in your in description of yourself of kind of writing under huge constraints and uncovering artifacts from big old software interfaces. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure, we could we could go all day about this. Um, well, what kind of constraints? Let's let's start with constraints. Sure. So, what you say under huge constraints? So, what kind of constraints do you face in your day job to make it more sort of real for people? I guess a big part of it is organizational constraints, right? Like Adobe is a big siloed tech company that was founded 36 years ago or something like that. And uh, Photoshop, for example, has been around for, you know, 30 of those years. And 
there's often just a lot of product silos that Adobe Design, which is the big the big product design team that we that we cross over, but still kind of have to operate within. And oftentimes there's different levels of review and change that happens when you have to like dig into changing some words. So um, Photoshop, for example, has so many layers of code that is hard baked into it. I've encountered error messages before that me and a designer and an engineer have sat down and tried to dig into and find so we can change it. And we've had <laughs> trouble doing that because there's, there's error messages that have been you know baked in for decades. So we have constraints like that, but then we also have constraints about terminology. We have we have such a wide suite of products and we want to try to make sure we're staying consistent. And oftentimes we come into like some product come into being through acquisition and comes with their own set of terminology. So do we change terminology to be consistent with the system and alienate some users, uh, some existing users, or do we make it easier for newer users that are coming to the product, you know, by changing? So that that's the age old question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting with something like that because there's also a lot of, I mean, there is a lot of professional jargon too. And my, my dad, he's he's 82 and he's uh, he was a graphic designer. So he, if he uses, you know, Illustrator or something or, or um, InDesign, he, he understands a lot of the terminology. He probably understands M's and N's and all the rest of it better than many of yeah. us do because <laughs> he remembers, he, he knows how to do an actual kind of print design. And so he can kind of use it, but he comes really unstuck when it comes to I don't know, saving a file or save as or something like that, because he has no mental model of, of a kind of yeah. the desktop and the kind of filing system stuff. And so, you know, there you've got a thing though where professionals are used to seeing certain kind of language. And as you shift it, if you shift it to be in some respects sort of more inclusive, because you're, you're instead of using the jargon, you're, you're kind of making it more, um, less kind of technical you're then going to start sort of alienating those professions who are kind of used to using it. And you have a section in the book, which is about the use of jargon. And it's not like taboo. It's it's not like never use jargon. It's kind of avoid it, but sometimes use it. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think jargon is an area where maybe we take an unpopular position because I think there's been a big movement that's really largely good. And that movement has been all about making sure that you're using plain language when you're communicating with your users. And there are so many good reasons to do that. There are reasons that it makes it, there's less cognitive load, it's more usable, easier to read, easier to scan, all those things. But in some cases, jargon can actually help you. And there's an example in the book of a piece of software that I worked on that was designed for people who are designing machines. They're putting together conveyor belts and systems of drives and pulleys and all the different bits that go into making this machine. And it uses terms that if you are someone just opening up that software with no context for this world of machine design, you wouldn't really understand anything. There were things like load and mass and incline and all those different pieces were being put together in this interface. So it would have been the wrong thing for me to try to make those more plain language in that case. Now, there are, there are pieces mm. of the software that we should have tried to make simpler in plain language. Like if they encounter an error message, knowing how to recover from that, that's really important to write in plain language. But you also need to learn about the people who are using the interface and make sure that what you're using reflects their their mental model for the system. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about error messages. Um, and can you talk about errors and stress cases? You know, errors always strike me as being the the most sort of underdesigned touch point <laughs> ever, and a, and a real missed opportunity. I, I you probably travel quite a lot. I I see so many errors on. Um, oh, there must be there's some kind of Windows 
it's probably NT or something, but there's some kind of Windows thing driving displays in airports of, you know, oh, yeah. show you flight times and stuff. <laughs> right, and as right. you see these error messages flashing around, I always think, oh, you know, that you're just broadcasting how kind of rubbish this is to, <laughs> to everyone in here. What a lost opportunity. And yet, you know, there are other, you know, famously there, you know, like Slack, you use Slack as quite a lot of examples in the book um, where they're, the way they kind of talk about errors has a, a lot more personality in, in it. But errors also obviously lead to stress because people get kind of caught. I mean, it's a classic, it goes right back to the sort of Don Norman's early books of a classic moment where the, the rising panic around an error, particularly in the, in the context of a, a parent trying to do something, let's say, for their kids, creates more stress and, and then panic and then you really don't know what to do and you get that sort of rabbit in the headlights thing. You make a point of talking about them in terms of stress cases instead of edge cases. Can you talk about that reframing? Sure. And that framing didn't come from us. That came from the book Design for Real Life by Sarah Wachterbetcher and Eric Meyer. And that concept, I think, is important to just keep perpetuating as an industry. Just flip the notion on its head that it's not about a small group of users that don't really matter, but it's about a big, <laughs> important group of users that could be alienated from what you're creating if you don't accommodate them. So stress cases, you know, rather than thinking about it as stress cases instead of error states or edge cases, it's a really important way to exemplify that this is a moment where someone could be going through something really difficult and it's important to meet them where they are. So uh, another thing that we talk about that I think is really important is for teams to think of errors not as something to write, but as problems to solve and as opportunities to help people. So the framing we give is, you know, like the best error message is one that doesn't even have to happen because you anticipated it and resolved it before it occurred. Right. And that's another reason why I think writers will really benefit from beginning to think of themselves as designers, because sometimes you'll get a spreadsheet sent over to you and someone will say, we need you to write all these error messages. And you don't even get to have that opportunity to have the conversation with your team around what's really happening here. How can we the meet people where they are? Yeah, exactly. Yep. There's real life happening in the midst of this. So how can we figure out how to resolve those problems for people rather than just writing a message and then moving on? There's one that you use in the book and I think it's about an insurance company. I think it's one of you actually had this as a case or in, in your work. And in that, there was a, a thing about um, we need an error message for when someone puts in a, an age that's greater than 100 years old because uh, the, the system doesn't allow or the policy or something doesn't allow anyone to put in an age as more than 100 years. And what happens with that is you, you start kind of laddering up and because you go, well, hang on, I, I could just write an error message, but, but why does that policy even exist and what's going on here? What was going on there? So that was a story that I had, and it was a difficult scenario to even unpack what was going on. So the engineer came to me and said, we've got this issue with the policy, and we need you to write the error message for it. And I, I just couldn't believe that this existed, because it would just be like a hard stop for people who were over a certain age. And that didn't seem like something that would just even, even from a business perspective, it's not going to be good for the product that we were trying to build. So it ended up that I would just get involved in conversations that got deeper and deeper into where this came from. Is it a policy? What group sets the policy? Can I meet with them about it and talk with them about it? So it started a lot of conversations and it was really hard to unpack. Um, ultimately, that product was discontinued before we actually got that 
piece in place. But I think the conversation was still valuable for our whole team to have and to go through that process of looking and, and pulling at this thread. When you're in a big enterprise company like that, it can feel like a problem like that is just too hard to solve and impossible to get through. But you can just keep asking questions and you can just keep pulling at that thread. And even if you you aren't ultimately successful, the people you're working with to try to raise this issue and try to solve it, they're all benefiting from being able to pursue doing the right thing <laughs> in this scenario. It's amazing though, isn't it? There's such a small thing, you know, uh, that request to come through, we need an error message for that. Actually then sort of you pull on it and it unravels into such a, such a complex bundle of policies and procedures and probably software things as well in there. I'm wondering, I mean, I didn't know whether it was a two digit thing or whether it was, you know, you could only go up to 99 or whether it was to do with the policy. It's like um, the Y2K bug. Else if people over. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's fascinating. But it also struck me that, you know, that kind of work, error messages, labels are often sort of band-aids on top of some other problem. And it's a, it's a bit like often say when doing kind of uh, contextual research, have a look for where people have put up, particularly in like sort of government offices and stuff like that, have put up handmade signs saying, you know, on a door that says this is not a door or, you know, um, don't use this button, go to that button <laughs> over there and all that kind of stuff because it's trying to fix something that isn't actually working. And it's the people on the ground who get asked a thousand times a day. And a lot of those things, any sort of stickers and things always seem to be a kind of a fix after the fact, although we didn't think that through and now we're going to have to put a sticker Mm -hmm. on this to kind of tell people to, you know, that this hot tap is hot. Did you see that thing that Jonathan Coleman posted recently on his social media, uh, the head of content design at Intercom? It was a uh, credit card reader that said, just like in so many stickers, it just said like, you know, press yes to continue, press yes to continue, press yes to continue. And people still ask, what, how do I continue? <laughs> so yeah, maybe we don't need more signs telling people to press yes to continue. Maybe we need to reframe that question in the first place. I have a photo and, I, and now I don't know where it's from actually. I can have to do a reverse search. I used to use it in talks quite a lot. And it's a, um, a ticket machine in a car park, an underground multi-story car park. And it's just covered in stickers. And it says, you know, do this first, press the gray button and then, you know, press the gray button first. But there's two of them on the screen and it just, there's more and more stickers <laughs> over it. Clearly, whoever kind of works there has just got so frustrated, but they've sort of made it worse every time. Yeah. Uh, but it's a very good example of how kind of words then, when it says, in this case, it says press the gray box on the screen first, but there's two gray boxes on the screen. There's sort of lack of clarity about that. And in fact, you talk about this quite a lot in terms of don't use the kind of locations of things instead use the sort of chronology of things and and to structure language quite differently. Yeah, that was a big part of our chapter about inclusivity and accessibility. Um, I think that's a good tip for writing for accessibility because, you know, when a, a screen reader is kind of walking a blind person or somebody who just needs to use the screen reader through, through the interface, like, you know, press the blue button on the left isn't going to be useful at all to them. But if you frame it as a continuum, like in a chronology, like, you know, next choose go right like next do this and you know previously and then finally do this makes a lot more sense so i think that's a really really simple trick that you know a lot of people who aren't thinking about that overlook for sure it reminds me of that classic assignment you sometimes got said in school which is you know imagine aliens have come down to earth and you have to tell them (laughs) how to use a a phone booth or something like that but it's a very good kind of way of then checking your assumptions yeah 
I want to sort of move on to voice and tone because you make the distinction between the two. And actually, sort of earlier on, you talk about irresponsible writing and being careful of sort of weaponizing words too. And you talk about this idea of confirm shaming. Can you tell us what confirm shaming is? Because I think it's a good example of tone of voice too, or tone and voice. So confirm shaming, this I think originated, as far as I can tell, with a Tumblr blog, <laughs> confirmshaming.tumblr.com, which just collects examples of blatantly manipulative, mostly there for people to sign up for newsletters. So they're, they're like little modals that come up and um, you can enter your email address or you can say something akin to like, no, I, I hate myself and I don't want to enter my email address. <laughs> I want to be miserable on Monday morning. No, I do not like want to save 20%. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hate money. Yeah. Uh, so you put, you put words in people's mouths for them and do that sort of hoping that it will result in more email addresses in your database. And I didn't even know. Um, I've been involved in a team that was, you know, like trying to work on increasing their numbers. I don't think they got to that point where they're trying those types of messages. But I'd be surprised if these things are even really effective in terms of getting the results people want from them. But regardless of that, they're just not ethical, right? It's, it's a terrible way to treat people as yeah, a business. Yeah. So that's a really clear way where your, um, your business, like even if you're doing really great things and selling cool products, immediately just becomes less credible as soon as someone sees that. It's funny if you made those things a real life thing and someone came up to you and you're walking through a station and, and someone said, would you like a, a sample of our product? Or do you want to be a dick? <laughs> I mean, you, you would never kind of do that, right? <laughs> I would like to be a dick, um, please. But somehow in the digital world, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. you know, somehow in the digital world, that seems to be okay. I think people see it as, you know, often that gets written in a silo as just like a little growth hack or a trick, and they're just kind of not thinking about how it represents kind of that larger voice that a brand or a product might try to have. So it's definitely like probably they're not trying to like be that manipulative in the rest of the voice, but it's such an early top of funnel good example of, you know, how you can just sort of break people's understanding and opinion of you quickly. Yeah, it's, a, it's just an immediate turnoff, isn't it? So, what's the difference between tone and voice? So I can I can take this one. Um, so I am me. I am Andy. Um, I'm always you know, have the same personality. I try to come at everything I do with the same set of values and the same set of interests coming from a, a personal level. And that's my voice. That's that's me. But the way that I talk to my sisters or the way that I talk to my college roommate or the way that I talk to Michael uh, when we're book planning and the way that I'm talking here in this podcast, these are all shifts in tone just to try to accomplish different goals. So I'm trying to just explain what I wrote in my book in this podcast. And therefore, I'm going to be a little bit more educational. I'm going to try to slow down and you know, frame some things before we get into it. And that's specifically just to make sure to give the right context and to get people interested in the book. So I think that um, you know, software or you know, digital experiences can do the same thing. You have kind of your core values, you, you have your voice that you need to accomplish. And sometimes that can be the same thing as your brand voice. Uh, sometimes that can be very different. Like Slack was, you talked about at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Yes, yeah, Slack's kind of in-product voice and brand voice are very similar. Can you give an example of when there's a slight difference between that? Honestly, 
I'll just go ahead and pick on my own company that I feel comfortable picking on, which is Adobe. Um, <laughs> oftentimes our brand voice is trying very much to be at the intersection of like technology and creativity, right? We want to talk to artists and designers and creative people, but we also want to make sure that they know that we have, you know, a very deep scientific engineering approach to enabling them to be creative. And that that's great. Like we really want to be like captivating and interesting and passionate and, you know, really speak to their creativity. But that's not super useful in the product. You know, they just want to get in there and actually, you know, use it, draw something on the canvas or figure out how to edit, you know, a video clip or make something very simple. So we really want to focus on clarity or being very straightforward and Sometimes brevity too. Like we have a we have a different set of principles we need to carry through in the product. So I don't think it's necessarily always the case. Sometimes when you have a very very product forward company, your brand voice and your product voice can be the same. Sometimes you have different mm. goals uh, inside the product, and then also like for your brand. So you would have in in an Adobe product, you might have something kind of very inspiring, or in the branding, and sometimes even in the kind of splash screens and stuff. But you're not going to go up to file new. It's just going to say, start creating now or whatever. Yeah. You kick ass kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. And that idea of separating voice and tone, it's something that I think the first example I really saw widespread was MailChimp from back in the day. And they made their voice and tone guidelines public. Sadly, I don't think it's live anymore. You could maybe check it out through the Wayback Machine, but yeah. it was voiceandtone.com and they put their principles out there and showed how tone should and can change in different situations. And that was, a, I think, a big moment for a lot of people working in tech to realize how central language is to the experiences we're working on every day. One of the people who worked at MailChimp at the time, Kate Kiefer Lee, also co-wrote a book called Nicely Said, where they get into voice and tone as well. Um, so that could be another uh, great resource. One of the really nice examples I heard of this was from R1, which is the AA1, the Austrian telecom company. And there was a project there, it was called, I think it was called the Wording Project or something. Now, in German, you get a very formal version of German. And there's even this kind of thing called Beamtersprache, which is like um, bureaucracy speak. You know? hmm. And it's very, very formal. And it's very kind of roundabout in the way so it uses an awful lot of kind of passive tense and stuff. And also you have the formal see and the informal do. So you, you, know, you, you do your friends, but you, you see some people who are kind of more senior or, or who you don't know. And one of the things that came out of a lot of the feedback was they, you know, that all of their marketing material, all the stuff on, you know, bus shelters and posters and stuff was all in this kind of youthful language. And in general, young people just use the informal uh, with each other, even people they don't know. And it was all around that. It was very kind of young and trendy. But then when the customers got emails or, or sort of tech support things or even in the kind of instructions of how to set up their, their router or something, it was all this really kind of formal language. And they said, you know, you're speaking to me like I'm, you know, a sort of teenager in your advertising, but then after that you speak to me like my grandmother. <laughs> and there's just this kind of shift in tone that happens and it, it destroys the credibility on both sides because obviously you can choose if you're a bank, you'll choose usually to be very formal and, you know, because we're kind of serious and, you know, there's no risk and all of that sort of stuff and trustworthy. Whereas another brand would choose to maintain that kind of youthful thing. And so they did a sweep through and they just went through um, – you know, everything. They went through the instructions, like I said, to how to set up your router. They went through contracts. They went through all the terms and conditions. But they also went through all the kind of template letters and stuff that the customer service people were sending out. 
and they they made a choice also to uh, respond not only to customers on their own channel, which is a sort of number one thing, but to respond in the style of that customer. Um, so if someone wrote to them very formally, they'd write back very formally. And in one case, someone wrote them a poem and they, they wrote back in a <laughs> poem um, just to kind of stay on that same wavelength. I thought it was a really nice example of how a company can actually um, create much more empathy. I will only be writing to customer service using limericks now, for sure. See, just exactly. see what happens. <laughs> in yeah. code. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about voice and I think tone is kind of what is the tool that gives us the ability to, you know, either react or be proactive um, in context. Like you can, you can, you know, you have your brand voice or your product voice, and then you can really use tone um, to be very supportive and empathetic in a support situation, perhaps. Like somebody doesn't, like is contacting customer service or somebody's credit card got declined or whatever. And then you could also, you know, within that same set of voice guidelines, use tone to be very motivational and proactive when somebody's trying to get through an onboarding experience. Or, or probably most, most of the time, you just want to be very neutral and kind of stay out of the way, recede into the background and make sure just to give, give the tools they need to do what they, they need to do. So I think that's kind of where tone comes in is that contextual flexibility, right? But I can imagine getting that set up is also, you know, it's a set of choices, right? And you talk about, um, you know, this, not that, and the having defining not just what you are, but also what you're not is kind of, it limits your palette in a very useful way. Because the problem you have is, is obviously you could kind of write anything you like, but having those kind of guide rails um, is really important. It's also quite freeing in the end. And I really like that idea of, I think you, I can't remember which example you use where you talk about, you know, we say maybe it was MailChimp as well. We're, we're this, but we're not that. Yeah. And interestingly, MailChimp kind of got away from that, but I think it's still very useful uh, when people are starting to think about this. Um, you know, this book kind of came out of a series of workshops that we, that we developed and give at Confab and a few other conferences. And when people get into groups and are given sort of a fictional or sometimes real life company to develop a, a product voice for, um, we give this to them. And sometimes people will um, start putting together a this, but not that, and they'll use opposites, right? Like I'm, I want to be educational, but not vague. And I'm saying, well, that's, that's really like not quite how we want to use it. Um, you kind of want to use the um, not that as kind of an upper limit or an extreme. So you want to be, you know, educational, but not pedantic, for example, and then provide some examples of each of those to really show, you know, there, there's an extreme or I guess an under limit to how you want to come across. Um, and that just really gets you talking about it, gets a group of people together in a room and, and thinking about like how this could be misused or how you can take this to an extreme. So that's kind of that, that exercise there, what that's good for. I think it's incredibly useful. I did them, one of the ones from MailChimp was uh, fun but not childish, which I think is a really good, you know, it really sort of helps you understand what you mean by this, not that, because fun can easily become For sure. childish. And, and I think that kind of some of those, the sort of upper or lower limits of things are, it's very easy to be very aspirational sometimes, I think, and say, oh, we're going to be this and we're going to be inspiring and we're going to be engaging and we you use all these kind of things. But it's also very easy to drift into something else if you don't have that other limit set and say, well, we're going to be this, but we're not, we're not going to be For that. Sure. Um, I think it's incredibly useful. There's probably loads more uh, we could talk about, but we are sort of coming up to time. So I have a sort of last question which I probably should have asked uh, first, which was, I mentioned at the beginning, I asked you the question, is this a content design book? You know, what gap were you feeling like you wanted to fill with this book? And what do you hope most of all that people will take away from it? 
Well, I'm hoping that for people who do the work of writing on different product teams and the people who write words for different experiences, that those people will feel empowered to have conversations that they've never had before and to start feeling like they have a place to actually shape the experience in a meaningful way. So to us, like we were trying not to say with the book, um, here's how to do this, but more here's how to think about this and here's how to have a conversation about it and here's how to be intentional about it. So rather than having all the answers, what I hope people come away with is new ways of thinking about the problems they wrestle with every day so that the next time they get a spreadsheet filled with different mm. scenarios, they're not just having to write it and feel like maybe those solutions are not what they would hope them for them to be. You know, like I, I would hope that people who do that writing can start to do work that they feel really proud of and start to feel like they have a hand in shaping the experiences that they're part of creating. And kind of from the other end of that, I like to think that we're going to get some, you know, writers, people who maybe have, you know, written for magazines or for newspapers and really want to figure out how to get into UX. We can kind of inspire them that like, hey, you can do design work too, even if you're a writer, right? Like you can apply this design methodology to the thing you're already really good at, which is words and communication and really, really find a, a valuable career out of that. So the very final question is, um, Power of Ten is named after the Eames film, Powers of Ten, where they, they zoom uh, you know, out to the universe and back into the sort of subatomic level in Powers of Ten. And with it's this idea of design operating at different levels, and you've talked about it quite a lot, you know, a, a piece of text that might exclude you know, 1% of Facebook users is actually 20 million people. And so my question is, what small thing do you think is maybe sort of overlooked or um, should be designed or should be redesigned or is designed well, particularly, that has a, an outsized effect on the kind of macro picture? I, I think that um, we talked about confirm shaming and buttons. I think that even, even the non-confirm shaming buttons can be just drastically simplified just to get people to understand the action they're taking. Um, I have kind of a personal crusade against the call to action, got it? Google does this a lot. Um, somebody just wants to have like an okay button or just to like dismiss or acknowledge. And it says, got it. And I've actually been in user research tests where people who, especially when they're coming to English from other languages, just kind of read that as sort of a, a dismissive rather than an acknowledgement. And it actually often will bear the kind of opposite meaning of what I think that people set out to do. So just really, really drastically simplifying your CTA buttons, I think, will make a huge difference. Michael? Yeah, so for me, I am going to pick the notification. And whether it's uh, on your phone as a push notification or as a text message or on your watch or on your computer or in your email we are inundated with notifications and they're a huge part of what people are asked to write for these products every day. And I just think that we can sort of see that concept of the power of 10 in an individual's life where people are just inundated with these things. My, my life has improved drastically since I started um, denying every app I install uh, notification permissions on my phone. <laughs> like they, they have to have a really good reason <laughs> to get me to allow them because it was just being abused so much by the people who make these apps. So I think um, the only people who can do something about it are the people who are, are working on it. And I think it just starts to really 
inundate people. It gets people looking at their phone even when they don't mean to be or don't want to be. Um, You talked in a recent episode with Teresa Neal about how engagement has kind of become synonymous with addiction. Uh, And I think think that's so true. And I think words, words really play a major role in that. So I hope that that we can solve this problem not by writing notifications differently, but by being more thoughtful and intentional about when we use them. So actually one part of writing is is knowing when to be silent. Right? Totally. Exactly. Well, what a fantastic place to end. Michael, Andy, where can we find you online? You can find uh, my website, mjmets.com. I'm starting to write there more as we get the book out into the world, um, just telling some stories from the people who were in the book and just writing about the work in general. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, at mjmets, um, Instagram, at mjmets. Yeah, exactly, double T, and LinkedIn as well. Brilliant. Andy? My website, I think you'll appreciate this, Andy. My website is andy.wtf. Sat on that that domain name when <laughs> when the WTF domains rolled, rolled around. Um, or you can find me on Twitter where I'm most active as at a Wellfley. And I am on LinkedIn as well. I'm happy to talk to you there, but I, I'm not super active there. Okay, great. Well, look, um, I'll put all the links in the show notes and I'll, I'll put a link to the book and your websites as well. Michael, Andy, thanks very much for being my guests on Power of 10. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. You can find the transcript of Power of 10 on thisishcd.com, where you'll also find the other podcasts on the network. My name's Andy Palain. You'll find me online as apalain on Twitter and and most other places, and also palain.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. (laughs) 